So today we are uh, continuing our study of John's Gospel. We're in John chapter 7. And you know, today as we come to God's Word, we're going to find in John chapter 7 a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. I counted about 15 here in John chapter 7. Opinions about who Jesus is. There's, there's murmuring happening here in John 7 as everyone offers their opinion, their idea. Some are favorable toward Jesus, some reject Jesus, some want to kill Jesus. So lots of different perspectives and ideas on who Jesus is. Maybe that has been your experience. Maybe you've wrestled with this yourself. Consider who is Jesus? And I think definitely you, you heard this in our culture as you're out there at work uh, or with family members or classmates. Those opinions that fly around the murmuring that circles this person called Jesus, this son of God himself. And so as we consider this question of who is Jesus, we're going to go to the Bible as our truth source. Uh, we're not going to be like some of the people we'll find in John 7 who they really don't go to the Word of God as their source of truth. They, they go to either human intellect or human feelings as their foundation of truth. And that's a very dangerous place to be, as we probably know from experience, right? People can have thoughts that are their own perceptions or their own, own misunderstandings. They can have emotions that fluctuate depending on lots of factors that affect us as humans. And so those are shaky foundations for knowing what truth is. And so today, as God's people, we go to God's Word to find out who Jesus is, who He really is, and to submit ourselves to that. So as we do so, let's come with humility. Let's come with humility and not self-assurance, uh, thinking that, you know, I've got the right thinking or the right feelings about this. Well, let's come with humility and say, God, I need you to reveal yourself to me. Let's also come with listening ears and hearts, because really the, the predominant uh, emotion in our culture when it comes to someone asserting truth is not one of listening and hearing. Instead, it's one of skepticism. So that's something we need to guard against. So I think as we go to God's Word, it would be appropriate if we pray together and we come with that humble, listening posture to the one who reveals himself to us today. God, we thank you that you are the revealer of all truth, all glory, all reality. And today we come acknowledging that we have thoughts and emotions, and those are not inherently bad things. They're things that you've created and placed within us, and yet they're, like every other part of who we are, they're subject to sin, to distortion, to be twisted and to go in the wrong direction. And so we come to you today with humility, saying, God, we need you to change our hearts and minds. We need you to transform us from the inside out. We need you to tell us who you are and who we are and what we're to do. But we don't want to just hear your word, but we want to be those who do your word within the practice today. So we come to you today in humility and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to John 7. Today, if you begin in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. If you've been paying attention in John's Gospel, you'll notice that there's a lot of Jewish feasts that are connected to the stories of Jesus' life and eventually death and resurrection. His ministry is tightly connected to these Jewish feasts. These are, are just a reason to celebrate. And the beauty of looking at these Jewish festivals and feasts is that every time that they come up in the history of God's people, there's a deeper layer of meaning that's attached to them. So, for example, you've got the, the feast, of, feast of Passover. 
You go way back in, in Jewish history, Passover commemorated the time that God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. When the angel passed over the homes of the faithful, and when the firstborns of the Egyptians were struck down. So that was the beginning of, of deliverance. Well, Passover took a deeper layer of meaning as Jesus broke bread with his disciples at the Last Supper. And it goes even deeper for us now as we look at Passover, and we see all of those connections that Jesus shed blood is like the lamb in Egypt that took away the sins of the people, and Jesus' death on the cross led to new life, and it affects you and I personally. So those deepening layers of meaning connected to that, what was originally a Jewish celebration and festival. You know, today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is another one of those Jewish celebrations and festivals. It's the spring harvest celebration originally. So this is the time of the year, just like in Kansas and in Colorado, when you bring in the green harvest, right? We're getting close to the wheat harvest. If we're down in, in uh, Palestine and the ancient Near Eastern world, this is the time of the year that the spring harvest comes in. So Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. It was a time of celebrating the Lord of the harvest who provides what's needed. But it took a deeper layer of meaning. As 50 days after the deliverance from Egypt, uh, the Israelites arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there was thunder and lightning, and there was God himself with his own hand etching stone tablets and giving them to Moses, ten commandments to lead and guide his people in covenant faithfulness. So that Pentecost took on a deeper layer of meaning. Now it's the giving of the first covenant. And then if you continue to read your Bible, you get to the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 is, is another Pentecost celebration. The Lord of the harvest, the giver of the first covenant, has now provided the Holy Spirit. It's a, a new covenant that's given through Jesus, empowering his, his people to bring good witness, to be witnesses of the glory of God in this day. And, and it's, it's another dramatic event there in Acts 2. It's like the first, uh, the second Pentecost at Mount Sinai. That once again, there's shaking. Once again, there's fire. And now there's tongues uh, being spoken to proclaim the glory of God in ways that every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered there will hear and understand. The fulfillment of Joel's prophecy there on the day of Pentecost. That's what we celebrate on Pentecost su Sunday. What about the Feast of Booths? This is the other harvest celebration. It's the fall harvest. That, that, that's the context of John 7 here. So in the fall, when you're bringing in the grapes and the olives and the figs and those other fall uh, harvest items, this is a time to once again give thanks and celebrate the giving, uh, the giver and the one who is the Lord of the harvest. One element of that Feast of Booths, well, what, what they would do is they, everyone would travel to Jerusalem for seven days of feasting. Uh, a lot of them were not residents of Jerusalem, so they set up makeshift tents, uh, set up some booths or tabernacles or tents that they would temporarily stay in during the time of feasting. If you were a resident of Jerusalem, you could construct something similar on your roof, and everyone would celebrate together, culminating with that last day of the feast that we'll read about in, in verse 39 of this chapter. One of the elements of this time of celebrating the Feast of the Booths is a ceremony involving pouring out water. And so we'll hear that deeper meaning as Jesus drives that point home in verse 39 coming up. But that's what's talking about here at the beginning as we hear about the Jewish Feast of Booths. And there among the people that are celebrating and worshiping and giving thanks to God, the giver of the harvest, there are some characters here mentioned in verse 3. So Jesus' brothers said to him, and these are likely 
his biological half-brothers, right? So Jesus uh, has a mother named Mary. He's got a stepdad named Joseph because God is his father, right? Uh, now, he's got some half-brothers that are the sons of Joseph and Mary. And so they are there at the time of this uh, festival, the Feast of Booths, that they said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples, your followers, also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. And there we have the first opinion of Jesus from his own immediate family members. They are not among those who believe in him in the sense of really truly following him. You know, we see here in John, there are those who believe, and then there are those who believe. There are the disciples of Jesus, and then there are the disciples of Jesus. There are the disciples who, when he teaches hard things like he did in chapter 6, about unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. There are the disciples who actually don't follow him after that point. And there are those who believe, but it's actually that they're just believing in the, the man who breaks bread and divides fish and fills their bellies. And they're impressed by the signs and miracles, and there's a what's in it for me posture toward Jesus, but not that all-in sort of belief. And Jesus' own brothers were in that category. So Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And so there's, there's some condemnation in Jesus' reply to his brothers. You don't want to be in that category where your time has come. That's a this-worldly place to be. You don't want to be in a position where the world doesn't hate you. That's a this-worldly perspective. And unfortunately, like many of the other characters we've met in John's Gospel, <clears throat> when Jesus speaks in heavenly ways, many people only hear it with earthly ears. And his disciples are, are very comfortable in the world. There's nothing to differentiate them from uh, the, the, the evil of the world around them. And there's, a, there's a, a warning and a caution to you and I as well. You know, there's a, a strong pull to, to blend in, to fit in, to keep up with the Joneses, to pursue the American dream, to kind of not rock the boat or make waves. And the message to any would-be follower of Jesus is, you know, if you're really following Jesus in an all-in sort of way, the world is not going to love you. Your time is not now. You don't live for the here and now. You don't live for the temporary fleeting pleasures of this life. You live in light of the coming kingdom that's already here. And the coming king who's already here. And you live in light of the end of time, not just what's happening right now. So after saying, I'm not going to go up to the feast, letting them go up by themselves, what does Jesus turn around and do in verse 10? But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So, you know, there's some buzz happening. Oh, this is Jesus. Lots of opinions flying. 
lots of different perspectives. He's, he's leading the people straight. No, he's a marvelous teacher. No, he's a good man. Many different perspectives. In fact, you read on there in verse 14, it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So now he, he is coming out publicly. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So there's some people that are lettering, he's a marvelous teacher. This guy's impressive. Lots of opinions that are circulating and flying around. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about who he is? He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He's kind of like Aesop. You know, he's got some pithy quotes that, man, you should really put a couple of those as bumper stickers on your car or <laughs> on your mirror in your bathroom to, to kind of give you a pick-me-up for the day. Is that your perspective of Jesus? I, I like the, the title of, of Josh McDowell's work where he, he says, you know, when you're confronting that question of who Jesus is, you really have three categories. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's actually the Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. And really, when you look at his arguments, I think he's got some merit in what he's saying. You know, he can't just be a good teacher because he says some really preposterous things. So either he's crazy, he's deceptive, or he's actually the Lord. And that's that's the, the, the question that we're confronted with as we come to Jesus. He's not content to just be a good teacher. He's not content to just be a good man. He's either the Lord or he's nothing. And so as people are muttering, as they're contemplating, considering, offering opinions about who he is, Jesus answers them in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is saying, listen, I, I hear your muttering. I've got the supernatural ability to hear thoughts and intentions of your hearts. I know some of you think I'm a good man. Others just think I'm a, I'm a teacher who has wisdom beyond his training and education. Some of you are pretty skeptical, and you've, you've, written off, you've written me off with a negative opinion. But I'm here to tell you today that I am God's message to a broken world. Jesus is saying that if God's glory is your highest aim, then you'll know who I am. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of John, John chapter 1, when Jesus is described as the Word of God, the message of God, God's clearest revelation of himself. And Jesus says, I am all about the glory of the Father. And if that's your heart, if that's your desire, then you will see me as I am. And there'll be no more muttering and no more opinions and no more questioning. You'll know. And so Jesus uh, is confident about who he is, and he states that to the people who are muttering and offering opinions, and we hear some more opinions as a result. Verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? You're crazy. You're evil. He pushes a button with that. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. He's referring back 
to the healing of the, the paralytic on the Sabbath day. This is really when things began to escalate a couple chapters ago. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Once again, Jesus is saying, I am the message of God. I am the deeper layer of meaning for God's people. Just as all these feasts are taking on new meaning and new significance, Jesus is saying, you know, you're very comfortable and familiar with circumcision. Not so many of us today that really get excited about that, but for the Jews, that was a marker of those who were within God's covenant, those who were uh, God's people, who were faithful to the Mosaic law. And Jesus is saying there's a deeper layer of meaning now. There are hearts that are marked by God's holistic, all-encompassing, life-transforming redemption hope. And that heals not just hearts, but it heals every part of who a person is, every broken part of every individual broken human heart, soul, mind, and body. And yet, the people are accusing him of having a demon, of having evil intentions and motivations. Maybe you've run into some of this skepticism and opposition in your attempts to present good news to people. They don't hear this good news. And they're looking at Jesus uh, in the wrong way. You know, he, maybe he's a good teacher, maybe he's got some good things to say. Maybe it works for you, but for me, I've got my own path to truth. I've got my own decision about right and wrong. And you face that opposition. What do you do in those cases? Well, I think just as Jesus demonstrated we present the truth of God's word. We share our own stories of recognizing and seeing the glory of God and making that our highest aim. And then we pray and ask that God, by his spirit, draws hearts to himself, that broken hearts and lives will be changed because he's the one who does that work. And we'll find uh, Jesus explains that even more in a few verses here. So as Jesus is, is having this dialogue, we hear some more opinions here in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? You know, they had just said, there was a different group that said, you've got a demon, who's seeking to kill you? And others are saying, I, I think this might be the guy that they're looking for. And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Maybe there's a conspiracy theory going on, that he is the real deal, but there's a cover-up happening. More opinions and muttering. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. Do you really? And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught the temple, and, and, you know, okay, now in the original Greek, there's no punctuation, so I don't know how your version has it. My ESV here puts a question mark in. On the screen, it doesn't, but in, in my Bible, it says, you know me, and you know where I come from. So I think, I think there is that, that uh, there's some ambiguity as to the tone that Jesus uses as he delivers this. But really, it's, it's a bit ironic that the people say, we know this guy, we know where he comes from. And Jesus says, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. 
I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they say, well, maybe there's a conspiracy. Maybe the important people know that Jesus is the real deal. Well, we know where he comes from. It can't be him. He can't be the Messiah, the Christ. And he says about himself, are you sure about that? You don't know me. But I know who I am. I know where I come from. I know why I'm here. I am God's message of hope and redemption to a broken world and to broken lives. And they're still not convinced. They offer more opinions. Verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, it's a mixed bag. You've got some that are now being persuaded and they're beginning to put faith and belief in Jesus. And yet others are still committed to arresting him to uh, accusing him of breaking the Sabbath, or worse, of equating himself with God by calling himself God's son. And so, again, we're hearing a variety of perspectives here. That, that carries out also with those in leadership. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they're caught up in, in this muttering and these opinions about Jesus as well. And then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is giving another stern rebuke here, as he did to his own brothers at the beginning of the chapter. There is a, a strong condemnation of the Jewish religious leaders here in Jesus' words. Really, he's saying, you cannot seek God. You cannot find God. You cannot come to God. And we find elsewhere in John's Gospel, there is an accept, an exception to that statement. Accept through me. That's the name of our church, right? You know, we're not the way because we think we're cooler than any of the other churches in the neighborhood. We're the way because Jesus says, I am the way, the way, the truth, the life, not a way, a truth, a life. That, that's the philosophy of our world. That's the philosophy of the people at John 7 who are offering opinions and they're muttering and they've got mixed uh, views on who Jesus <coughs> is. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus looks at these people who should be the religious leaders of God's people. And he says, you can't come to God you cannot find God. You cannot seek God. You know, that, that's a humble and important message for us to hear as well. We need God to show himself to us. We need God to draw us to himself. We need God to enable us to come to him and to cry out to him. And that's the beauty is that in Jesus, he does just that. By his spirit poured out, he draws us to himself. He enables us to overcome our sin uh, desires, our sin leading and propensity towards sin and evil, and to be delivered from that old path and to be made new and, and to be born again. We need what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in chapter 3. You know, Nicodemus, you don't just need a little tweaking and adjustment. You need to be born again. That's a radical, life-changing transformation. And Nicodemus heard that with earthly years. He's like, 
can an old man enter his mother's womb again? This is a bit ridiculous. And Jesus says, no, I'm speaking in heavenly ways. Spirit gives birth to spirit. There's a the, the difference between who you are right now and who God wants you to be is as radical as leaving the womb and entering that delivery room and getting your hind end spanked and the umbilical cord cut. That's the kind of radical life change that you need. You can't do that on your own. That's a work that only God can do. And Jesus brings that message here to the Pharisees. But they hear with earthly ears. In verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And ironically, there's an element of truth in their misunderstanding. Yes, Jesus is going to do precisely that. Just like God had promised to Abraham in the Old Testament, Abraham, as the leader of my people, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's never been just about the nation of Israel. And now these, these Jews, Jews and their uh, snarky uh, response to Jesus telling them about finding God and coming to God and their inability to do so. They actually speak some prophetic truth. Yes, this is good news for the Greeks as well. It's good news for every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they're still confused. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, really it comes to a head here, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out so that the process has moved from a conversation with Jesus' brothers to him kind of quietly sneaking into the feast to now standing up and giving some public teaching. And now he's crying out so that everyone at the feast, on the biggest day of the feast, hears these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this would resonate with them during this particular festival because part of the ceremony involves pouring out water. As they're celebrating the harvest, this is a, a part of the feast and the celebration. And now he's tying into that by analogy. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Your listening is plugged up. Your earthly ears are unable to hear the heavenly message of the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. And yet God's truth is ringing through, and there's a deeper layer of meaning that Jesus is unearthing for God's people. It's not just the fall harvest feast, but there's going to be a radical, heart-changing, life-transforming work that God does that will bring a result that Jesus describes as rivers of living water flowing out of your heart. Now that's explained here by the author of John's Gospel. What does he mean by that in verse 39? Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I've got good news for you today. Jesus has been glorified. And today is Pentecost Sunday. And there's a promise contained here in John's Gospel that's for you and I in this room today. That this Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him receive, results in us having streams of living water flowing out of our hearts. What does that metaphor mean? 
That means that it's not just refreshing for you. It's not just a radical, life-changing transformation for you personally, but you get to get on board with God's kingdom mission on this earth. And it, Luke describes it in, in Acts chapter 1. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You will testify the truth about Jesus in ways that will bring refreshing and life and restoration to a broken and hurting world. We get to carry out the same mission of Jesus as believers filled with the Spirit of God. That's good news. And yet, here as we read the closing verses, there's still a mixed response. There are those who believe and those who disbelieve, those who are on board and those who are still muttering. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is not the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? We have not officially sanctioned belief in this guy. The power structures have not authorized him. But the crowd that does not know the law is a curse. It's just these plebeians who are believing in this Jesus. It's the minions. It's the, it's the general populace. The really smart, influential, powerful people uh, don't think that he's the Christ or the prophet or any of these other things that you're muttering about. Except for one person in a position of power. He, he, he introduced some question. This man, Nicodemus, we've met him before in chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who had gone to him before in chapter 3. So Nicodemus had had an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball conversation with Jesus. He met him personally. And whatever Jesus said to him there in chapter 3, if only we could if only we had a recorded, a recorded uh, message of that conversation so we could go back and look at it, study it, and apply it, and live it out. Wouldn't that be great? Where's Larry? He, he likes doing that with you. I'll give you permission to cheat and go back and read chapter 3 on your own when you get home. Find out what was it about that conversation with Jesus, eyeball to eyeball, that caused Nicodemus to risk his neck and stand up in this group of powerful people and say these words. He had gone to Jesus before, and he was one of them. And he said to them, cautiously, a bit timidly, but with some resistance to this course of discussion about Jesus and muttering, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then they pounced on him and replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And that's the end of the conversation in chapter 7. But really, there, there's, you, you see the, the mixed bag, the mixed perspective on who Jesus is. The big shots are seeing Jesus as a threat to their power, and they're trying to suppress him. 
and keep them out of the way. And yet there's one of those big shots, Nicodemus, that say, my heart is being changed. My heart is being drawn to him. Let's listen. Let's see what he does. Let's... His words are riveting. It's as if he's speaking God's message to a broken world. There's the minority report there coming from Nicodemus' mouth. And maybe that's the, the inroad that God will give you in somebody's heart this week, where there's just a little bit of questioning, a little bit of doubt on that narrative that they believe to this point in their life. That, you know, life is just about living and dying, making a mark, leaving a legacy for yourself, earning some cash, being comfortable, enjoying time with family, having the, the cares and the needs of this life met and maybe a little extra. And they believed and hoped in that sort of a, a dream and a vision. But maybe God will put you in your path this week and let those streams of living water flow through you because you, if you are a son or daughter of the king, you have his Holy Spirit working in you and through you to bring that redemption hope to someone who's maybe questioning like Nicodemus is here at the end of the story. The story that they both believe. And he'll use you to bring them to the, the one who is God's message for a broken world, the one who will bring the healing and the life change that they need. Well, let's, let's uh, could we stand together today and pray and commit uh, to being used by God in ways that his spirit flows through us this week. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you draw sons and daughters of the king to yourself. Now, Lord, today, if there's anyone here in this room who's been muttering about who you are, questioning the truth of who you are, I pray that today they would have that eyeball-to-eyeball conversation with you and meet you as you draw them to yourself, as you bring the message of God's glory to them personally, as you confront them with the life that they've known to this one and the futility of trying to work their way to you or earn their way to you or claw out some kind of an abundant life of their own making. And today I pray that you would show them the radical transformation that you provide of a life change, sins forgiven, new birth. God, we pray this week that, that as you promised here in your word that that living water would not just be a pool, a stagnant pool that we pour to ourselves, but it would be springs, it would be rivers that flow out from us to affect the people that you place around us, neighbors, neighborhoods, strangers that we meet along the way, that we begin to see people through your eyes, not just as, as nameless, faceless people that we walk past. So we pray that you work in us and through us this week in Jesus' name.